Okay. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, my name is Nazia Khan, and I am the Assistant Director at the Atlantic Council South Asia Center. On behalf of the Atlantic Council and our President Frederick Kemp, I would like to welcome you all to what I think will be a really good discussion. Um, we have spent a week with these fellows, and we have had so many great discussions already, so I'm really glad that we can open up this conversation to more people. Um, so today we're joined by the 2015 Emerging Leaders of Pakistan. There's four up here on stage and many more right here in the front rows. Um, the South Asia Center launched this program. It's the Emerging Leaders of Pakistan Fellowship Program. We launched it about three years ago, aiming to identify, cultivate, and support young changemakers from across Pakistan and build a sustained and mutually beneficial engagement with them. So each year, after a really rigorous application process, which I think everyone in the East Front Row can attest to, um, we select 15 young civil society leaders from across the country, from across Pakistan, to participate in a three-week fellowship. Um, the fellowship is, consists of a three-week study tour, but it is a longer-term engagement with each other, with um, the 15, with the bigger cohort of past fellows, and then also a more sustained engagement with the Atlantic Council. So this being the fourth class of fellows, we have basically built a nucleus of change makers that's nearly 60 strong in Pakistan. They're working across diverse sectors, they're working at the grassroots, grassroots level and in truly innovative ways. So at the Atlantic Council, we believe that this is important because Pakistan is important. Just last week, Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was in Washington, D.C. at the request of the Obama administration. They discussed the promotion of public health and girls' education, economic growth, clean energy was a very big topic of discussion, and a shared commitment to a stable Afghanistan and counterterrorism. They also discussed the promotion of civil society because an active and flourishing civil society is really the undercurrent of all of these issues. It is necessary, it's a necessary piece of a functioning democracy, a flourishing economy, and a stable government. And Pakistan's youth, which makes up a majority of the population in the country, plays a huge role in this. So with this fellowship program, we get a really unique perspective to look into these issues through a unique lens. Um, we have these young leaders here who are living, working, and experiencing both the challenges facing the country and the progress that is occurring every single day on the ground. So I have to mention, unfortunately, this morning that we did wake up to really unfortunate news from the region. As all of you, I'm sure, know, there was a, I believe it was a 7.5 magnitude earthquake in Afghanistan that really rumbled through Pakistan. It was felt in India as well. And it's really devastating. Um, our thoughts and prayers, of course, are with all of those affected, with the friends and family that inevitably many people have relationships to in this room. Um, it was undoubtedly tragic, but I also woke up with really a sense of hope thinking about the work that the fellows are doing. Um, I couldn't help but think of Azhar, who, you know, in the week in New York, we've talked about how he is using communications and technology platforms to develop better responses to tragedies such as this. Um, that's just one of the things that he does, and you'll hear more about that later. Um, but that's why this is all so important. A civil society, one that is connected, organized, and working really at all levels, is the first step to building a stable country and one that can respond to something like this. 
So the four fellows you see here on the stage and the remaining in the front row, they're social entrepreneurs, they're aspiring politicians, photojournalists, educationists, and educators. Um, they're tech innovators and minority rights activists and more. And they're all working to improve their communities and to tackle the most pressing problems facing the country. The 15 really represent a cross-section of Pakistan's diverse society, and that's a goal of ours whenever we select them. And this is the first opportunity for all of them to travel to North America. Also a really important thing because we want this opportunity to be open up to people who maybe don't have access to something like this in the past. Um, so the purpose of the fellowship for us, it's threefold. Firstly, we want to really empower these young leaders with the practical skills so that they can glean the best practices from the people that they meet and adapt that back to their own context in Pakistan. Secondly, as I mentioned previously, we're really trying to build that nucleus of change makers in the country. So we really want them to work with each other to facilitate idea exchange and to build collaborative relationships because we're not always the ones that are best suited here in Washington, D.C. to face some of the challenges in the country. Most of the time, we're not. And so we are really trying to empower those people who are there and working and living with it every day. Finally, we're seeking to build a foundation for a strengthened U.S. and Pakistan relationship. Um, we're working at the people-to-people -people level. We're hoping to address misperceptions on both sides of the relationship. The fellows have spent a week in New York. They're in D.C. They had the first day of meetings today in D.C. We will go to Austin later this week um, and then finish up in San Francisco. So we'll get a pretty diverse spectrum of different meetings. Um, and through all of these meetings, they will be sharing their experiences, knowledge, and recommendations with stakeholders in the relationship. And they will share the issues that they believe are facing youth and the future of Pakistan. And a lot of those things will come up today. So we really are hoping to cement a foundation for a better and more informed engagement between Pakistan and the United States at that individual level. So I would really like to take a moment to thank the Carnegie Corporation of New York for supporting this program for the last four years. I would also like to thank the U.S. Embassy in Islamabad um, that has supported all aspects of the fellows' visit. They hosted the fellows for a pre-departure orientation in Islamabad and will continue to work with them whenever they return. Um, I'd like to, of course, recognize Huma Huck, who's right there in the second row. Um, she worked on the program since the first year and has really guided this effort. Um, so we're all grateful to her for that. Um, and also, finally, I'd like to thank the Meridian International Center um, for being our implementing partner in the project, particularly Meg Poole and Jocelyn, who are in the room here. And I'd actually really like if Meg would come up and maybe say a few words on behalf of Meridian. I think. Hi, everybody, and thank you for coming. Um, I just want to speak on behalf of my colleague Jocelyn and I and our organization, what a privilege it is to be a part of this um, program. Um, first, as an opportunity to work with the Atlantic Council and some of the other great partners that that brings, but also truly a privilege to have an inside perspective from this incredible group of fellows. It's not every program that we get to travel around for, with the group and hear directly from them and really witness um, as their eyes are being opened or as they're sharing some of their stories from the field. Meridian, for about the past 60 years, has provided leadership development programs for nearly every country around the world on every topic. 
and we primarily deliver that through exchange programs. And so most of those are happening here in the United States. And what we get to do for a living is design three-week exchange programs for incredible groups like this and identify their counterparts in the United States who they should be meeting with. So just again, thank you to the Atlantic Council for this opportunity and everyone enjoy. Thanks, Meg. So without further ado, I'd really like to turn it over to the fellows. Um, you all should have a copy of the bios. There's more in the lobby if you didn't get a chance to grab that. Um, we can't even touch the amount of work that they're doing, the extent that they're working in their communities. So I really encourage you all to read through those bios closely and to engage with them um, in the Q&A and also in the reception that we have following this event. Um, so I think, I think everyone will probably tell you about the work that they're doing. So I'll just really quickly introduce everyone and then we can just jump straight in. So right here we have Fatima Rizwan, who is the founder and CEO of TechJuice, Pakistan's premier technology hub and entrepreneurship hub. Um, next to her is Danish Ali Bhutto, who um, he is a legislative researcher and a women's rights act advocate. <laughs> um, he works with the federal legislature, particularly the Women's Parliamentary Caucus. And then next to him, we have Zara Ali, who is a lecturer at the University of Karachi and also the Aga Khan University. Um, she's a psychologist by training and is working to provide services to underprivileged communities, vulnerable populations, um, and also just in general dispel the stigma around mental health um, in a developing country. And then finally we have Azhar, who is from Mardan originally, but living in Islamabad. And as I mentioned before, he's an entrepreneur who uses technology um, and communications platforms to, to address some of the issues that are facing Pakistan, including humanitarian crises, but also other development program problems, issues, um, response mechanisms around the country. So, all right. Fatima, do you want to kick off? OK. Hi. Um, my name is Fatima Rizwan, and I'm from Lahore. Um, I'm a computer engineer by profession, and I graduated from University of Engineering and Technology in 2012. And, Unlike most of the individuals in my class, I wanted to start my own company instead of opting for a job. So um, I had an idea for a product and applied for incubation. So at, in 2012, there was only one incubation center in Pakistan. So I applied and I wasn't uh, shortlisted. Um, in the meanwhile, I participated in a hackathon, I won the hackathon, and uh, the person who awarded me the prize was the CEO of a company. So he said, uh, Fatma, you should apply for the job. I applied for the job, uh, but six months into the job, I realized that this is not what I want to do with my life. I don't want to be a software engineer. Uh, I just don't want to be a software engineer. I want to do something else with my life. I, I want to do something uh, which can impact uh, a lot of people. So um, six months into the job, I applied again for the incubation. At that time, again, there was only one incubation center in Pakistan. And unfortunately, I was rejected again. So uh, during the whole process of applying for incubation at different incubation uh, at this incubation center and getting the rejection, I realized that um, there is not a single platform in Pakistan that is working for entrepreneurs and startup founders in the country. So um, I researched that night and uh, 
within a within a week, uh, I I came up with that with this idea that there should be a platform in Pakistan that 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 should cover entrepreneurs in the country, and in future there will be a lot of people who want to start their own companies and working in different um, uh, different sectors uh, in technology. So I started uh, Tech Juice, and um, within a matter of a few months we started gaining a lot of traction because in Pakistan this was totally new. I mean we were uh, interviewing people who were um, running different organizations, and uh, we were making the information available online. So this was something really very new and people were very kind to us. I mean, we started approaching CEOs of high-tech organizations and they were available for the interviews. So uh, people started following our website and in the meanwhile, we started getting a lot of traction in terms of collaboration with different organizations. And um, since we became Raven Profitel, I started hiring people as well. So um, it's been a year and a half. Um, I have a 12, uh, team of 12 individuals who are working with me in different cities of the country. Uh, our head office is in Lahore at Alpha Software Technology Park. And uh, within a matter of one year, we have covered a lot of startup founders in Pakistan. Um, um, our startup founders have, uh, for example, recently we covered a startup founder. They have raised, uh, it's an e-commerce website, they raised $50 million. So, and then there was another Zameen.com property listing website. It also raised $9 million. And uh, um, there was also a young individual from a university. He was only 20 years old. And uh, he got featured on our website for his startup. And after a matter of two to three months, he raised hundred thousand dollars. So it's 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 a great achievement for us. And um, TechJuice is more like a hub for entrepreneurs in the country. It's a digital platform. But in addition to that, we are also doing um, events in different cities. You go to different universities. You organize events, and we uh, tell young people that. Starting a business is not something that only Western countries can do. You can also start their own companies, and we are here to help and support you. And in addition to that, we also do um, events for startup founders and investors where um, we invite different uh, startup founders from the country and investors from different cities who have already achieved something in their life and they want to invest in young companies. And that's it. <laughs> Uh, Assalamu alaikum and a very good evening all of you. It's a pleasure being here and talking to you. Uh, my name is Danish Ali Bhutto. I'm a legislative researcher and a women's rights activist. I actually work at the federal parliament and contributing to parliamentary oversight, gender sensitive legislation, and <coughs> advocacy on women issues. Uh, at the parliament, I'm particularly attached with the Women's Parliamentary Caucus of the pa Parliament of Pakistan. Uh, before I get into what uh, the National Assembly of Pakistan, which is the lower uh, equivalent to, of the lower house of the Parliament of Pakistan, what it has been doing for engaging youth in the policy making and legislation, I would talk about uh, what Women's Parliamentary Caucus is and what it has been doing so far in terms of rights of women, empowering women in, in, in areas of politics and uh, socioeconomic empowerment of women, and what it has been doing to cope with the uh, incidence, instances of violence against women from domestic violence to gender issues and early marriages and everything. Uh, basically, Women's Parliamentary Caucus is a non-formal uh, non informal platform of women parliamentarians from both the houses, National Assembly as well as Senate, which works on consensus building and advocacy on women issues and by, by enacting uh, different gender-sensitive laws and different uh, advocacy on women issues, oversight of the executive. So this is one of the things. Uh, how I got into the parliament was like I had been a part of uh, a EU-funded project. I'm basically a business graduate, but I chose uh, working in the parliament instead of working for some corporate organization or corporation. 
uh, a multinational corporation. So I chose that particular project because I had an urge of doing something that has a broader impact, and Parliament was the best place for that. And I came through uh, one of the opportunities. Uh, there was a pro project improving parliamentary performance in Pakistan. So I got an opportunity to apply for that. I got in there. It was a project funded by European Union and implemented by British Council at the Parliament. So getting an opportunity to, to work with the Parliament was one of the biggest things uh, one could ever think of. So I chose to apply for that. I got selected over there. I went to the Parliament, became a part of Women's Parliamentary Caucus as a young parliamentary associate. I got in there. Uh, there was a lot of resistance by the people over there because administrative system and, and bureaucracy is very rigid as far as change is concerned. So the youth was coming. Uh, that was a project of about 100 uh, young people engaging within the parliament and working directly with the parliamentarians on research and coordination and advocacy. So there was a lot of resistance by the bureaucrats, senior bureaucrats, but we made it. And I am currently a permanent uh, part of that particular organization. I'm working at the speaker's office, and Women's Parliamentary Caucus is a part of that. So I'm also working on program and coordination of Women's Parliamentary Caucus as well, uh, writing different concepts, notes, brief papers on gender issues, domestic violence. Uh, then again, uh, we have been currently working on uh, kind of tabling the laws uh, in terms of home-based workers, domestic violence, and domestic workers, because there are a lot of people who are, who are working at homes on different different crafts and different skills, but they've got no political or legislative backing. So we are going to table a bill to ensure their rights are protected and they are given their due, whatever uh, the, the work they have been doing. Uh, SRS National Assembly of Pakistan is concerned with that advent of women, young parliamentary associates program in the parliament of Pakistan, they realize that the youth has got a lot of potential. And now they have been very welcoming as far as uh, initiatives and engagement of youth in the policy making and research is concerned. So inputs have been taken from the youth. They are engaging more than 100 uh, young professionals in the parliament. So right now, what they are doing is, uh, other than the Young Parliamentary Associates program, uh, Parliament of Pakistan has also initiated a parliamentary studies program in different universities of Pakistan. So as to sensitize the youth in terms of policy and legislation that they should come forward and they should do something to strengthen democracy because we have had first ever democratically elected government uh, transition of uh, government from one democratically elected government to another so there needs to be a sensitivity and uh, amongst the youth as far as democracy and human rights is concerned so that is why parliament right now is doing they have initiated uh, parliamentary studies program, and more than 60, uh, 60 universities have signed in with the parliament to initiate that particular program. So that human rights and democracy and all these civic sense can be, can be kind of brought out amongst the youth. Uh, if we kind of shift towards the women's rights and other, so what Women's Parliamentary Caucus is doing, we have been developing research reports on different issues like early marriages and domestic violence then issues uh, like regards to harassment of women in workplace. So there's been laws that has been enacted in the parliament in terms of acid crime prevention and protection of acid victims. Then there's another law uh, criminalizing anti-women practices like honor killing and there are so many other anti-women practices going on in Pakistan. And other than that, there have been laws to ensure that 
domestic workers are being protected, homeless workers are being protected. So a lot of uh, has been uh, going on uh, into the parliament to ensure that youth has been engaged within the parliament in the policy making and decision making, and so, so that they can emerge as future leaders. So these are some of the things. Thanks so much. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Zara. And as Nazia has already introduced, very rightly introduced, that I'm a psychologist by profession. I teach at the University of Karachi, which is a state university in Pakistan. And I'm a visiting faculty at Akhan University School of Nursing, where I teach psychology to undergraduate students. Uh, very rightly said, I, I dispel stigma around mental illness, to be short. Um, but um, to be frank and honest, there's a lot to say in, a very, in very little time. I try my best uh, to make it short. OK, um, let's start with a little uh, review, uh, an overview on mental illness and how it affects societies in general. Uh, as we all, all know that people with mental illness and psychosocial illnesses represent a major proportion of world's population. One, according to the stats, oh, one in four people will experience mental health issues in their lifetime. About one million people die of mental illness. Uh, one million people die of suicide every year. And suicide is the third leading cause of death. Particularly, depression has been ranked as the third leading uh, uh, burden of disease, third leading cause burden of disease, and it's going to be, it's projected that it's going to secure first place in the disease burden by 2030. Also, if we see um, national st uh, suicide statistics in Pakistan, uh, suicide is not really formally reported uh, and compiled in Pakistan. And that is why it's not reported to World Health Organization annually, which means that any obtained data is uh, neglected or um, underreported. That way, mental health is both a cause and consequence uh, Consequence of poverty, compromised education, ill health, abuse, violence, all sorts of issues, right? So that is why mental health plays an important role in the implementation of sustainable development goals by United Nations. Um, if we look at the stigma, there's a lot of stigma around mental illness, especially in the developing countries, and Pakistan is one of them. People do not talk about, they do not speak up about um, mental illness. And because of this lack of stigma, because of lack of awareness, there is um, a meager amount of professionals, uh, number of professionals available uh, for services. There are about two or three professionals available for a million people in Pakistan. And that is why I aim to provide easily accessible mental health services to people, to vulnerable populations. And vulnerable, who do we call vulnerable populations? These are the population um, people uh, who are uh, trauma victims, um, teenagers, um, uh, all those people, um, adults, children who go through, who suffer from mental illness. Um, I run a community-based mental health project. I work with the Akhan uh, Development Network, um, uh, particularly Akhan Social Welfare Board for Pakistan, wherein I uh, look after uh, the mental health portfolio. Uh, this is a community-based mental health project where we have started free uh, clinic and referral services. We provide free clinic uh, referral services, as well as we do free awareness sessions for people. Uh, these awareness sessions are on the risk factors of mental health. Um, recently, I formulated a paper on mental uh, health as well, in which we talked about mental illness, risk factors, protective factors, uh, and all the necessary issues. Um, 
uh, in a span of one year, um, we started in January 2014, and in a span of one year, by January 2015, we had covered around 1,000 people, 1,000 clients directly, and more, uh, more than 1,000 indirectly through the word of mouth. Um, there's a worth mentioning case study that would further highlight the work that we do in this domain. I'd um, like to mention the incident of 13th May 2015 when uh, Shia Smiley sect of Muslims were attacked by six terrorists that resulted in 45 or more casualties. Uh, in the wake of that incident, we went door to door uh, in that community. We visited individuals who had lost their families, people who had directly witnessed and survived the trauma, and all those who were indirectly suffering from the trauma. They were provided uh, screening services, free counseling services, and any other psychiatric intervention that was required. Um, not just, uh, not only, this, we did not just limit it to the psychiatric intervention, but also the empathy and social support that was required by all those people who were indirectly affected by the trauma. We did group therapy sessions with them, we did, we did recreational activities, and in a span of three to four months, most of them had resumed their work lives, their routines. So uh, that was a success story. Another story that I'd like to share, I'm a storyteller and I like doing that. Um, another um, story uh, was um, about a 35-year-old male. He was a business graduate. Uh, he had a psychotic bre a breakdown in his early 20s. Uh, he had lost his job, he had isolated himself, he was suicidal. Uh, his only caregiver was his 70-year-old mother. Um, even though he was referred to a psychiatric clinic, but he wasn't adhering to any sort of um, psychiatric uh, prescription or regimen that was uh, prescribed by the doctor. And he was also unwilling to follow up with any of the doctors. At that point, uh, we realized, we acknowledged the importance of protecting our clients, our patients' dignity. And that is the point we acknowledged, uh, and that is the point we understood uh, how to humanize the experience of mental health. That is when we started a social support gatekeeper mechanism in which our team members were trained to visit the client, to follow up with the client, uh, to do support interventions, to provide empathy, social support because this client, he needed treatment, but more than that, he needed empathy, he needed social support. Um, and believe me, in, um, in, in few months from that time on, in five to six months, that client was um, regularly following up with the doctors, um, he was looking out for jobs, and this was a journey from being homebound and suicidal to being social and occupationally functional. So that was a huge success story for us. And that is the whole concept, the idea of introducing mental health uh, into the doorsteps of the community to the people. Um, that is when we realized that we didn't want to wait for people to approach us, but we wanted to uh, reach, them, reach out to them rather than wait in our offices and assume that they would come to us since this uh, thing is new. Anyways. Um, about the future interventions, um, uh, we uh, intend to, we, we aspire to extend this gatekeeper support, such, uh, support structure mechanism, and we would want to um, extend this to the remote areas of Pakistan, uh, like Chitral and Gilgit, where the suicide rate is alarming, where it's increasing every day. We would like to extend it to those areas. Also, we uh, plan on uh, starting our own crisis intervention hotline, which has been um, very successfully implemented in uh, other countries, but we'd like to introduce that in Pakistan. Even though we do have telehealth uh, uh, hotlines in Pakistan, but they do not uh, directly address psychological issues. With this helpline, uh, we would want it to focus on uh, the crisis intervention. Um, lastly, 
The third intervention is uh, introducing an online uh, system, uh, introducing online uh, online modules, educational modules, um, to make uh, the mental health awareness process easily accessible and cost-effective across the youth of Pakistan. Thank you so much. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Sayyid Azhar Shah. Uh, I am basically co-founder of a technological company, Telemutants, and I am also communication for development specialist. Uh, before I go to what I have been doing and what I am uh, planned to do, first I would like to give a little bit perspective. Uh, Pakistan, being a developing country, faces a lot of pressing issues, a lot of chronic problems like illiteracy, uh, in lack of infrastructure, lack of health facilities, there are a lot of problems. And to add to that, the conflicts that have taken place, uh, the world has changed after 9-11. We all agree on that and it has affected Pakistan tremendously, being a frontline state in the war. And uh, that has led to more problems. Now, if we go back to history, the, after the creation of Pakistan in 1947, the best thing that ever happened to Pakistan was the Green Revolution of the 1960s. Since a lot of uh, the people in Pakistan are employed in the agriculture sector or the agrarian, it's an agrarian economy, basically. And the Green Revolution led to high yield uh, uh, in the production, it led to mechanization of the agriculture. So that led to a lot of economic development. After that, the next big, big thing that has happened to Pakistan, it has been since the past 10 to 15 years, it has been the ICT revolution, the information and communication technology revolution. The uh, there, the media channel, there has been a widespread growth in the media channel from news channel to sports to entertainment. A new service industry has evolved. Likewise, mobiles. Pakistan has a very healthy pen, uh, mobile uh, uh, penetration rate in the South Asian region. That's very encouraging rates. Uh, then uh, the internet. Like, as this spread of ICT happened, or as I believe, I call it revolution. So likewise, in many educational institutions, uh, different new disciplines also uh, uh, started, and a lot of people started enrolling in them, like uh, 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 business and IT graduates, and computer sciences graduates, telecommunication graduates. Now, to, this gives us an opportunity to bank on this new ICT revolution and use it for uh, addressing some of the biggest development challenges of Pakistan. Today, unfortunately, uh, earthquake has struck Pakistan for past few years. There was a 2005 earthquake. After that, in 2010, there was massive flooding. In 2011, there was again flooding. So there have been a lot of disasters in Pakistan for quite some time. So this perspective, I will give example how technology we have used to address some of the development issues of Pakistan. 
when there was a post-flood relief project in 2000, uh, the 2011 floods, accountability is always a very important issue for any donor or any funding partner in, in, in uh, any organization, especially when it's humanitarian assistance. It was a uh, food and shelter distribution project for four, 400 households in the Sindh province of Pakistan. Now, in any humanitarian crisis, resources are scarce. You do not have a lot of resources available that you can come in and, and, and deploy any high-tech uh, system. So you have to rely on something that is, that is like, you can say, uh, virtually free. So what we did was, uh, uh, the area was Mirpur Khas. What we figured out that there was the frontline SMS. A lot of you must have heard the name of it. It's an open source SMS platform. So we used frontline SMS. The population was illiterate, the beneficiaries, 400 total in number. We devised a keywords mechanism system for them. And what we used to do through that for the host organization, we established two-way communication channels. So what they used to do was when they used to call, tell the people that at this point, at this date and time, the food or shelter will be distributed. So they used to tell in the SMS that it would contain this much rice and this much oil and this much wheat and whatever were the things inside. And when people would go there, and uh, also with this, uh, a very good uh, outreach campaign was also launched and the people were told, they were given leaflets that zero to nine keywords, what does this mean? What does zero means? One means, like one was I guess for, uh, if there is a problem in, in food, two was like for a problem in shelter, three was like for corruption, it also addressed uh, seven or eight was for disability, uh, six was I guess for uh, if uh, someone uh, uh, tries to, uh, uh, exploit any woman or try, uh, tries to take bribe from them. The illiterate people, a lot of them had not even, uh, did not even knew that like you could, uh, oh, you could ever uh, send a text. So they were just through demonstration trained and it was a huge success within that project the zero corruption was reported. And I again tell you that was a humanitarian assistance project of some people who are associated with the development sector. They would understand that when humanitarian crisis happens and the, it's emergency response. So the corruption in these cases, they are rampant. They, they, they happen. So this, this is one example of how technology was used. And to add to this, the, the cost factor open source tool was used. and since, as I said, that the uh, telecommunication has, uh, has spread to all parts of Pakistan, mobile outreach is there, and SMS is very cheap. So the best part of this is that the monthly operational cost was less than $1. The tool was free. You just needed a laptop. Most of all, you needed the will that, yes, I have to deploy this. Yes, the people have rights. They, they should be informed what they would be given. And they can complain. And we can listen back from them and learn from them. I would give another example of how technology 
can be used to improve the development sector programming. Uh, another project of, uh, since you uh, people may be acquainted with that, the northern uh, belt of Pakistan, the Fata region and Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province to which I myself belong, it has been, uh, it has been affected, Pakistan has been affected by this conflict, the war of, on terror and uh, being a frontline state. Within Pakistan, Fata and uh, Khyber Pakhtunkhwa province have, have been affected the most. Now there, this, there was a project, so they, they uh, about, because there is this uh, uh, realization that economic drivers of conflict are very important. They need to be addressed to, in order to address this issue. So what they did was they launched a livelihood program. There was this organization. Uh, and uh, what they, uh, we did in that, was uh, it was through radio programming they would tell people how you can do small livelihood opportunities like like home gardening honey bees farming these were for the, these uh, these radio shows were for the idps internally displaced people of the fata and kpk region and these were for the uh, uh, other people living within fata at that time so there were six radio shows and a soap drama so what we used to do, we set up uh, an audience feedback system. So through where S with SMS and through interactive voice response, and we leveraged upon the modern SIP technology. The, uh, I would not get too much into technical jargon to make it simplify that, uh, that at one point of time, uh, uh, a lot of people, to, for each show at one point of time, 20 people could make a call and no one would get a busy line. So you see the engagement, this is a two-way engagement, how you are engagement, the, engaging the people and when the, they would get the feedback of their radio show, the benefit was that immediately they would get to know, okay, so this program was a success, this was not a success. This topic was good, people liked honeybees, they found it easy. Oh, kitchen gardening, no, they, people had problem, they did not got it, we need to again invite the guest or people have questions, we need to send it to the guest, connect them. So this made it easy, you could not go to FATA directly, you could not go uh, access each and every person even if you go there, but through technology it, it made it possible. So these are uh, just two examples and later on maybe we get a chance we will talk about some other. Thank you. Okay, that's great. Um, I'd like to open up, before I open it up to the audience for questions, I'd like to just pose maybe one question to either the people on stage with me or some of the fellows who are in the front row. Um, so in some of our meetings today, and you know, just over the course of the last week, we keep on harping on the fact that Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif was just here last week. Um, the Obama administration invited him to the White House, and that's, that's a pretty rare thing, not many leaders of countries get invited just to talk about the bilateral relationship. So it shows that there's a huge significance in this relationship. But what I want to know from all of you is, is he raising the right issues? What do you think, as young leaders who are working in the country, are the roadblocks to progress that you face, that the country face as, faces as a whole? So if anyone wants to answer, you can just raise your hands or Maybe I can pose it to the people on stage. 
Yeah, I believe uh, talking about the issues, one of the major concerns, one of the major challenges for Pakistan is security and war on terror. So I believe the issues that have been raised are quite significant as far as gender equity, equality is concerned and issues related to the security and issues related to, to the economic cooperation. So these are some of the things uh, that have been discussed and I believe these are for some of the ma ma major concerns uh, as far as this, the bilateral uh, relations are concerned. Is there anything else that you think he maybe isn't covering? Are there any other issues that you think kind of get pushed under the rug? I would uh, just say being uh, part of this youth forum and uh, working in the tech sector of Pakistan, since tech sector of Pakistan is growing at a very good base and there is this feeling among the young people who are involved with this uh, tech sector or uh, entrepreneurship in one way or the other that through entrepreneurship we can rebuild Pakistan, a better Pakistan. So I think that uh, since our neighbor India, the Indian Prime Minister was here and uh, he got some good meetings, some good things out of Washington like um, and went uh, out to um, all the way to Facebook and had meetings, we set up a, uh, was successful in getting a $150 million or something venture capitalist fund set up for entrepreneurs in India. So I think this is something which uh, the Pakistani leadership needs to think about, that they need to focus on this area also, try to get something out here. What we found interesting at the South Asia Center, was, that was back a few weeks ago, um, whenever um, the Indian Prime Minister Singh came to the United States for the General Assembly, he, he skipped, he gave up his opportunity to give a speech at the General Assembly and just went to the West Coast. So he went to talk to the entrepreneurs and the tech companies while Nawaz Sharif came to New York to address the international community. So it was just interesting to see the priorities and where the bilateral relationships really are. Um, Sandy, yeah. did you have something to add? Yeah, I wanted to. And if you will, please just introduce yourself briefly and then you yeah. can. Uh, I'm Hussein Heather and I'm co-founder of Bedar Society and EcoChange. Bedar is an organization working for promoting education, education for sustainable development and human rights in Pakistan. And EcoChange is promoting sustainable development globally and having chapters in seven countries of the world. Well, I want to add one thing. Uh, that is the most important thing and our leaders finally should realize it that like they have to think uh, Like in a creative way because the world has been changed a lot You cannot just like go to the international forums and talk about the same issues which have been discussed for like a quite a long time Okay, what's happening in Afghanistan? What's happening in that country and what's happening in that country? We are increasing our military strength or we want to hold, get a hold over the politics of the region and all the stuff like no the battle is like or like the war is not about like fighting with like weapons it's like more about like you if you want to prove yourself you have to prove it economically you have to create a strong economy you have to create a strong education system like i have been to japan i went to japan like it was like a huge forum world education for sustainable development conference and they were like ministers from 80 countries of the world and uh, sorry to say uh, our minister of education didn't put it in as his priority and he didn't attend the event so uh, that's what I want to say about the our politicians and especially about our current politicians that they have to create, create think creatively like for the, they have to bring some creative solutions. I'm really inspired by the work Mr. Modi had done. Like when he came to here, he like met the met the CEO of Facebook, 
I mean, like, this is the real thing. He, because he knew that, no, Facebook is the reality. And, like, he met some entrepreneurs because he knew that this is the reality. But, like, uh, while addressing to the presidents or, like, heads of the nation doesn't make any difference because this is what we have been doing for a long time. And just, like, speeches and just, like, you know, delivering the lectures, it doesn't really make a difference. No, our country needs something positive. Our country needs something solid, and our country needs something on ground at the grassroots level. Like, for example, uh, if we, we talked about just uh, to cut it short, uh, talked about the tech system. Our tech system is really horrible. Like, it is actually. Uh, affecting the entrepreneurs of a country who are the future of the country and it is giving a lot of exemptions to the big industrialists like industrialists are still there and they will be there forever because they have like a lot of wealth they have a lot of power to like manage to escape the tax system but like entrepreneurs like us are the one affected by the system thank you so I'd like to open it up to questions um, I'd ask that you please wait for the mic and then introduce yourself when you do. So, Jay. Hi. Uh, hello, everyone, and thank you all for being here, and, and welcome to the United States. I'm Jay Kansara. I'm the Director of Government Relations for the Hindu American Foundation. We've done quite a bit of research on religious minorities in Pakistan, and so my question is on that line. And it's uh, directed primarily on the stage to, to Danish Saib. However, anyone on stage or in the audience is welcome to, to provide their thoughts. My question is that there are, because of past generations of leaders of Pakistan, there are certain laws on the books or that are not on the books that really hinder the uh, hinder religious freedom and religious expression in Pakistan, particularly the blasphemy laws, as well as the laws that uh, discriminate against the Ahmadi Muslim community, as well as uh, the lack of a Hindu marriage act. My question is, as young leaders of Pakistan, what, what, can, what can the world expect from your generation to ensure that uh, minority rights are a priority for coming generations of parliamentarians and lawmakers? And what are the obstacles that maybe this current generation faces in introducing those laws? Uh, thank you very much for your question. And it's obviously a very relevant question. Uh, as far as uh, the blasphemy law is concerned, uh, if you see the recent progress on that, there was a time that when nobody could talk against that. There was a time that when talking against that meant that you will be losing your life. But right now, if you see the recent case in which uh, uh, former governor Samat Asif was, was assassinated, uh, the person who was the perpetrator, his charges, his sentence has been retained by the Supreme Court of Pakistan. And, and there was very pertinent uh, remarks by the judge of the Supreme Court that talking against blasphemy and talking against the blasphemy law are two different things. So there's room for development, and there's, uh, there is hope that if the uh, justice of the Supreme Court has started talking against the law, so there's a room that quite possible then in future we might see some amendments. And as far as uh, uh, the other law you are talking about is in terms of Hindu marriage law, so uh, there are different uh, MNAs working in the parliament from the minorities, Hindus as well as Christians, and you'll be surprised to know that there's one of the uh, women on minority seat uh, 
which is a Christian, uh, uh, Nasser, she's from the political party, which is extreme right, Jamiyat Ulama Islam. She's part of that, and she has been um, doing amazingly. She's been doing an amazing job uh, and working actively in the par parliament. She has been on, on one of the topmost persons who are doing involved in the most of the business of the house. So she's doing an amazing job, and it has been uh, been on the priority list uh, to enact such law that uh, rights of Hindus are protected. And as far as other uh, issues related to minorities are concerned, I guess uh, we have a couple of friends who are working on minority rights. They can talk about talk more about that. I think Rizwan here had a comment, and then we can come to uh, thank you. Uh, Danish has rightly said that the acceptance has uh, now been increasing among the uh, most of the legislation at the level of legislation. Particularly, uh, you have discussed that one of the most notorious law, which is uh, blasphemy law. Uh, so it has it has taken many lives in uh, of the most of the innocent people in uh, Pakistan. The law, uh, Danish has said that the Salman Tasir, which who, who was uh, uh, assassinated by one of the uh, right-wing person uh, who was his uh, actually uh, bodyguard, the now uh, previously judges, uh, the, the, the judges who are who supposed to verdict on uh, those specific laws, were fearing to uh, take those uh, those those cases. But now the trend has been changed, and uh, 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 we are hope that uh, uh, someday that, that that law would be amended, and uh, we, we we cannot cannot uh, uh, say that we are not hopeless. And uh, there are certain there are there are uh, apart from this one, there, there are major uh, major changes that are supposed to be brought into the, the uh, for instance, Hindu Marriage Act that has recently been debated, but though, but that has not been signed and agreed. But uh, we we hope that uh, uh, our uh, minority uh, uh, rights legislators are working on it, and uh, uh, soon you will get good news from them. Swai, will you please introduce yourself briefly before we hand it over to Rizal? Uh, sorry, I, I, my name is Savaimal. I am a minority rights activist. Uh, actually, I am, I am from uh, Sindh, which is uh, one of the major uh, uh, area where minority is uh, in uh, considerable proportion. But now, uh, since, since, the since the establishment of the Pakistan, Majority, minority of that area were Hindus, but now has uh, been decreasing. But we are trying to create a harmonious and, and uh, environment to have a good uh, environment, uh, minority rights, uh, uh, minority friendly environment that, that can have acceptance in, in terms of uh, having uh, interfaith harmony and religious, uh, uh, and uh, what we can say, tolerance in our society. And then Rizwan right over here. Thank you. Hi everyone, my name is Rizwan and I promote religious tolerance in Pakistan and being a one of the most targeted community in terms of religious tolerance Christian community. Uh, my, uh, my family lost everything, one of the community violence incident which compelled me to work for the eradication of the religious extremism in Pakistan. And the gentleman asked question about the minorities' rights. Yes, it's true that we have not as much not rights, and it it, it has a lot, lot of ground realities. But it uh, was not as 
now it in the past history when we see in the get creation of pakistan minorities leaders supported the pakistan and the last vote maybe you know about the sp singha was a christian leader he put a casted vote and the punjab became a part of the pakistan it was a secular pakistan but there was a lot of in the history in the last 3 4 30 40 years there was a lot of islamization was in force in pakistan and lot of extremism all that and there's the issue that the minorities are facing lot because the the country state has a one religion perspective until this state has not separate from the religion the minorities will face issues and still there are lot of issues and the minority and the issue the constitution of pakistan ignored the the minorities society ignored the minorities political process ignored the minorities there are lot of issues and it it is a hurdles for the minority leader to come at the parliament at come legislation process and there's lot of issue and the tolerance level of the pakistani people is very low and this is lot of thing that we have to work and it will take time until we have to work on the people we have and the currently i am have started a nationwide movement for promoting a religious tolerance in pakistan because i feel whenever we talk about the blasphemy law when we talk about changes of blasphemy law when we talk about the make any any legislation in the parliament the people people come in the streets they talk against us against the minority it's mean the tolerance level of people is very low now we have started a movement in pakistan we are trying to people that they have to speak up for the minorities they have to speak against the conflict they have to speak up against this extremism think tank and we believe that by engaging the people by awaiting the people from all community that they have to stand up for the minorities it will be helpful for us to work in the legislative process to work for the blasphemy law to work for all that and i believe and i hope that in the next time in the future we will see a one secular and democratic pakistan thank you thank you um we have one brief comment from anam and then we'll go back to questions hello everyone uh, my name is anam bhatti and i'm actually a visual artist using art and design to uplift life in pakistan i just have to you know i ha- add a small incident uh, basically about my project which i did with the minorities uh, and also the majority muslim uh, community of pakistan it was uh, for the interfaith harmony and what we did was we actually had the session of card making by the orphans living christian orphans living in an orphanage for the elderly muslims living in uh, the old age home and when the cards were taken to the muslim uh, old or elderly which you know at the age of 60 and 70 are rigid and do not accept a lot of changes none of the elderly anywhere in the world do but they were very welcoming the muslim uh, majority muslim elderly were very welcoming and the cards with the road were they were heartbreaking like they were amazing cards and the duas did send them the prayers the love were was amazing so there even the elderly do have a space for the other minorities and the minorities also want to be there but the commun- our, our other communities there are other uh, forces which do not really let it, let that happen and because we do we have this gap we do not engage with each other we do not really relate to it but i but there i i do believe there is a hope where we can actually get them together get the minorities together as we are together here we have two people from the minorities community and the others also belonging to other sects of uh, a muslim community we are here together and believe that we can work together to build a better pakistan Thank you.
I'm going to go here for a question. Uh, thank you. <clears throat> My name is Colonel Mohammad Rafiq. I am a visiting scholar of uh, Georgetown University. Uh, first of all, I just uh, congratulate you all people, all 15, you are proud of Pakistan and I'm really happy to see you here. Uh, just to comment on uh, the uh, issue of a minority, <laughs> it's very good that uh, these things are being highlighted at an international forum and a scholar are highlighting these things. These phenomena are everywhere. Uh, Pakistan, I do agree, there are certain problems, but uh, I think uh, these problems are not uh, as uh, glare or significant. <clears throat> it, uh, it, it is, uh, these problems are being improved day by day, and uh, now if there are some problems, those, those to be seen in the context of the war on terror, these terrorists, these extremists, uh, they are not good for uh, their uh, uh, threat or uh, something like uh, all the segment of a society there in Pakistan, including uh, minority as well. But by and large, I think uh, if we see, just see the example, I think two out of uh, 15 are from minority. That speaks almost 20% uh, representation. And uh, in Pakistan, uh, there are hardly 1.5% minorities. And you see contemporary, uh, uh, our uh, Indian friend was also telling, that. There are more issues, I think. Uh, you see uh, how much uh, population, Muslim population is there, and you see the how much uh, representation politically and uh, other aspects. So uh, I just must uh, say that uh, the uh, group of scholars, you must focus on uh, a good thing from United States like uh, education, health, infrastructure, social setup, and uh, do benefit to your country when you go back. Thank you. Um, so why don't we go over here to the woman in green. Hi, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Zara Heather. I work at IREX. Um, we uh, work closely with USCFP in Pakistan to help uh, Pakistani undergraduate students come for a study abroad um, a semester here at different universities. My question is, um, all of you are here representing different causes, different social causes that you're working on to strengthen civil society. And I believe, Danish, you mentioned, you know, a really big concern for, I guess, the international community is security in Pakistan because of its, you know, geographical location. Um, and so you all, as the 15 fellows that have been here, what is the thing that has been the most important for you, discussing together, sitting together, what has been, what is the most pressing issue for you to work on at this, at this moment? Is there someone in the front row who hasn't spoken who'd like to take it? It working? Yeah, thank you. Uh, I think the most important issue for all of us has been the because it's a very interesting question, very exciting if you think about it. We all belong to diverse background, but when we sit together, we have discussions. The thing that I, I believe bothers most of us is. The, the wrong perception, I would call it wrong, why I would come to that, that the narrative that has been built about Pakistan in the uh, outside, how we are trying here hard, wherever we get the chance, when we have been having meeting with policy makers, with, with, uh, 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 with other uh, imp very important organizations in New York, 
we've been trying to highlight that the perception in media is actually quite much different than the actual situation on ground. Uh, so we cannot deny the fact that there uh, are problems they, because there is a big war uh, has happened. It's still in place right now in Afghanistan. You can see in Kanduz what's happening. So you can see Pakistan is bordering that. And uh, there are uh, a lot of Afghan refugees. There, the situation is very complex. So, but the narrative in media, how it builds it, it shows like it's a security state where you go and there are always bomb blasts and, and you cannot walk around and you cannot do anything. So how it affects us very badly. We cannot get like uh, uh, any investments. We cannot uh, expect that any clients, potential clients or any people would come to us. For example, here one of our fellows, he runs a, a tourism business a few days back i had a chat with him and his uh, like he is associated with people with with rural it's very small communities in far flung areas who uh, whose livelihood depends on tourism and uh, our discussion uh, the conclusion was that it has been affected very much and because the media narrative uh, that that's very important we need to see that that's something which bothers all of us a lot i would say if I were to add a perspective to what as I said, I would say that it's the civic engagement of youth in the decision-making in democratic processes that I believe has been one of the most pressing issues. Because since, you know, Pakistan consists of more than 60% of the population of youth, and it can be one of the major strengths of the country. So involvement of and engagement of youth in the, in the democratic and decision-making processes is one of the major challenges. Because you see, uh, we, we face so many different issues as far as youth is concerned, so many different challenges uh, like poverty and discrimination and, and uh, easy access to education and, and different amenities of life. So if a government formulates certain policies like where there is uh, most of the majority of the uh, youth has been engaged, so there, re there could be so many different aspects of uh, of, of the challenges that Pakistan is facing, like uh, militarization and, and violent extremism. And because this is the youth that has been taken out by these different extremist groups and been uh, made to car carry out activities that sh they should not be taking. So I guess it is the civic engagement of youth that stands as the most pressing issue. So we're going to come to Fakia for a brief comment. And then we have a couple questions in the audience. So I'll take them together so we can squeeze more answers in. Hello everyone, my name is Fatiha. I would like to add something to what Azhar said and I agree that this is one of the major issues which uh, we are facing right now is that we build narrative and we have preconceived notions about our country and about our people. Uh, so um, I would not be specific but I would generally like to comment and I would like to tell everybody that yes, there are flaws in our system. Yes, Pakistan is facing challenges and loss of challenges. Uh, and right directly, whatever we you know say, we uh, first of all we start blaming our leaders and we start blaming our system. But I would say that this these preconceived notions and these narratives are the biggest challenges which Pakistan is facing. And these are the things which actually creating the religious, um, uh, you know, you can say intolerance. These are the things which are creating hype among the youth and, uh, you know, the terrorism and lots of these issues. So just because there are problems and just because we are going through hard times, we cannot lose hope for a better future. We cannot lose hope 
hope and we say uh, to blame the future of Pakistan. We should always be positive and optimistic and keep striving for uh, change and keep striving to build something positive. If we are positive and we would try to, uh, you know, build something good out of all those negative and odds, Pakistan would definitely have a, uh, you know, great future, inshallah, in very soon. So thank you so much. Okay. Usman, very quickly, we'll have a comment from you, and then we'll take questions. Hello. Hello. Um, uh, hello. I'm, my name is Usman Khan. I'm one of the fellows. Uh, I have an e-commerce startup in Pakistan by the name of Empress Bazaar. We empower remotely located artisans. I just want to briefly comment on my uh, friend's uh, point here is that Pakistan has a security concern. And yes, you might be right. That's one perspective. But if I remember correctly, and I don't know if this is the Times quote, that you are 50 times more likely to be killed in St. Louis than you are in a terrorist attack in Pakistan, and 10 times more likely to be killed in a traffic accident in the US than in a terrorist attack in Pakistan. So, so it's more of just how you see the things. So thank you. That's some, oh, that's some good perspective. Thank you for, <laughs> thank you for adding that. We, we always talk about the, the stereotypes that are broken. And in the first week in New York, I think, some of the fellows got an ex some experience as to the insecurity that exists in the United States as well. Um, so I think there was a question over here. And then was there another question over here? The, the lady in blue, I saw your hand earlier. So maybe we'll take both of those together. And then we'll yeah. take the next uh, two from this gentleman. Uh, hello, everyone. I, I'm Shad Begum from Pakistan. I work for Women's Economic and Political Rights in Khabar Pakhtunkhwa and Fata. And presently, I am Regan Fassel Fellow at NED. Uh, so I'm very happy to see five, 15 young <laughs> emerging leaders from Pakistan. So this is what we actually we were wishing and we are doing in Pakistan to have more leaders, especially in the young generation. So I'm so happy and I appreciate Atlantic Council effort in Pakistan to encourage this youth. So, and just like uh, if I'm not forgetting the name of the lady, she asked about the pressing issue in Pakistan. So I wish we could have one issue. So <laughs> because we have so many pressing issues, but the good thing is like we have a very uh, good diversity in the emerging leadership. Like the, the, you can see the youth sitting here, like they're focusing on multi issues. So the more we have issues, the more we have the, uh, uh, I would say the potential leadership coming out of those issues. So for, for that actually very happy. Uh, and my suggestion to Zahra, she, she mentioned she is working on very good, uh, uh, I would say, like a very uh, important issue, because I belong myself to Deir, and uh, I have seen this militancy coming and starting, starting even from my region, and then the IDPs and all those things. So nowadays we have a very big issue, like the suicide uh, issue in women and girls is much increasing in SWAT. Every day we are hearing about the cases in girls and women, and because they're still in trauma, what actually they've been through. So um, you also need to come there in Malakan Division, and we are there to support you. And uh, we, we are there to link you with the women and girls there in Swat, Malakan, and all the region. So um, uh, like I, I would suggest you need to focus there as well. Um, and the, the uh, Mr. Sayed Azhar, yeah. Um, as we have experienced, you know, like the IDPs, the very uh, historic influx, and then they were uh, there with the host families, and like still our PDMA, the Provincial Disaster Management Authority and the uh, uh, FATA Disaster Management Authority there in the process of establishment. Uh, what you mentioned actually, this is a very good point, like uh, the, the, the coordination, the access to information, and then access to 
especially women and girls in such cultures, like in our culture, in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and Fata, which is still a very critical issue. We are still even have a big number of IDPs, like from Waziristan, like still the operation is going on, and we have. So I just want to know about this specifically that do you have any process of engagement with the Provincial Disaster Management Authority and the uh, uh, FATA, FDMA, this uh, uh, FATA Development Authority, uh, Disaster Management Authority, that you have because these recommendations to, should go to them because they are the authorities and they should come up with such initiatives because we couldn't see these things there. Uh, because again, the issue is the culture, which is very much, you know, like I would say, you, you work in sin, in sin comparatively, you can access women and you can access, at least you can engage people. So you have, either you have any best practices, like engaging PDMA and FDMA in these things, if you have such best, best practices, so we would love to hear about that. And if not, then what specific recommendations do you have for them to utilize based on your experience? Thank you. So think about that um, question. We'll take the question from the lady in blue. Um, and also, I encourage you to hopefully you can stick around and connect with some of the individuals at the reception. Hi, thank you very much for coming and speaking. Um, you all have really inspiring stories, and it's an honor to be here and listen to you. My name is Alina Ali, and I grew up in Lahore, Pakistan. And I am currently in the US doing my undergraduate education. And I'm in DC interning at the Woodrow Wilson Center these days. Um, so it's great to be here and listen to you all. Um, so my question is primarily for the individuals who are involved in um, the tech industry in Pakistan. Through your stories um, about your own startups, you sort of alluded to how um, you, through your experiences and efforts in the tech industry, have helped to sort of over overcome some of the shortcomings of the public sector and the government, whether that be through providing resources for entrepreneurs or through enhancing and connecting disaster relief efforts. Um, but through your experience and exposure, um, how, do, how does the public sector constrain the development of the tech industry, either through institutional defi deficiencies or active policies which have an adverse effect or just a lack of policies and attention that has been devoted to the tech industry? I'm very curious to sort of get a sense of how the government can be, you know, better sort of prepare itself and harness, harness its own resources to meet the needs of our burgeoning tech industry. Thank you. That would be great if you could answer that. Okay, all right. Um, thank you so much, Samina, for the question. Um, so when I was telling you my story, I told you about uh, an incubator. So you'll be glad to know that that incubator was launched by the government of Punjab. So the government of Punjab has been actively working in uh, entrepreneurship and sector, tech sector of Pakistan. Um, and uh, they, they, are, they, they were the first one to introduce entrepreneurship and on these incubators. And then uh, the other uh, organizations followed and they started uh, uh, these things as well. And um, uh, in terms of solutions, um, uh, uh, the government is also working on these things. And we are also seeing uh, certain initiatives in Pakistan, like Kotro Pakistan, who are working on developing um, uh, solutions who can, who can be very helpful to the general uh, public. Uh, I, would, uh, I would add to this, and uh, both of the questions would be fully answered. Uh, we I would give example, we developed a two-way communication tool. That is after the examples I give those projects were, uh, but the entire team were involved. That was with other organizations and in the startup. Then we developed a two-way communication tool because we figured out that uh, if you have a frugal innovatory product that could be easily deployed, 
that could be uh, a low cost uh, solution and that could be uh, very that could be very effective for two way communication two way engagement and it could be could be used as an audience feedback system as a complaint and response mechanism like uh, any sort of engagement between a, a service delivery institution be it the state or the civil society organization or pdma or fdma any organization now the biggest problem that you face is so we have been successful in getting uh, its first deployment because you know in tech sector when you uh, are developing such a, a product at a grand scale, a scale and uh, sorry everyone for using technical jargon but just small like Aspris and Yi framework and these type of uh, systems, very complicated systems. Uh, so you need to, to then deploy it and pilot test it in, in, a, in a very dynamic environment. We got that, but unfortunately, it's good though with a, with a, with a very good project. It's an IANGO International funded project um, on sexual reproductive health and HIV AIDS advocacy project. But we wanted it with, to be with government. Now the problem is, when you are selling it to the government, you, there needs to be the ownership for such system. And complaints and feedback is such a system, not even in Pakistan, in any country, it would be no one would agree to it ever. It's very difficult to sell it. We've been trying it. We've, we've tried it with PDMA for the IDPs, that uh, uh, two-way engagement system, wherein uh, complaints could be solicited. It could be in systematic way, organized way, processed. Uh, but success, we have never been successful. I have met two, three federal ministers. I have met a provincial minister. I once uh, convinced a very uh, important minister but then ultimately it ended with the bureaucrats, my concept paper, I, didn't, I still don't know where it went and no one would respond. So you see, uh, then you realize at some point of time that okay, it's until and unless you do not get lucky to someday just impress uh, someone like a prime minister or chief minister who at that instant say okay, yes, do it. And so I thought that let's focus on the socio-economic development sector. So with government, it's very difficult, frankly, honestly speaking. So I believe, unfortunately, we have actually gone over our time. But I encourage, hopefully, all of you to stay and continue these conversations and maybe talk to some of the fellows that you didn't get a chance to hear from because they all have really great stories and are doing um, just remarkable work in the country. So please, um, thank you all. Join me. Please join me in thanking these fellows. Um, and I guess we'll, I'll see you in the reception.